Chris and Chris Talk Movies. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Chris Ferry, and of course, this is my crow. My, this is my crow. My host. crow. My crow host. I'm the crow host, Chris Huddleston. He's made of crows, folks. Uh, today I'm we are very. Of, I'm a murder of crows. Uh, we are very excited to be talking to you about a Christmas horror movie extravaganza that I had never seen before. Black Christmas. The high school girl's been murdered. Mr. Harrison's daughter is missing. And now at the house where she lives, the other girls are getting obscene phone calls. Yeah, what I've done is I've tapped this phone so that when it rings, it'll ring at the station house too. There was a little girl murdered over in the park tonight. Yes, I heard. Your phone's ringing. Terminal 55. Remember those idyllic scenes out of your childhood? Crisp winter nights, star bright. Sleigh bells, crackling yule logs, candlelight glistening off of shimmering Christmas trees, chestnuts roasting over open fires, carolers beneath snow-covered window ledges. Remember those. Remember them well. After Black Christmas, they'll never be the same again. Black Christmas, starring Olivia Hussey, Keir Dulay, Margot Kidder, and starring John Saxon as Lieutenant Fuller. If this movie doesn't make your skin crawl, it's on too tight. And do you have a synopsis for us, Monsieur Chabestan? I do. Uh, Black Christmas is a Canadian, a 1974 Canadian film directed by Bob Clark, who also directed A Christmas Story. Uh, and it stars Olivia Hussey, Margot Kidder, Keir Dulay, Andrea Martin, John Saxon. And the synopsis from Rotten Tomatoes is, as winter break begins, a group of sorority sisters, including Jess, Olivia Hussey, and the often inebriated Barb, Margot Kidder, begin to receive anonymous, obscene phone calls. Initially, Barb eggs the caller on, but stops when he responds threateningly. Soon, Barb's friend Claire... Lynn Griffin goes missing from the sorority house and a local adolescent girl is murdered, leading the girls to suspect a serial killer is on the loose, but no one realizes just how near the culprit is. So I had seen this before, maybe a time or two before watching it uh, for this recording, but you were completely unfamiliar with this. So, completely so you, unfamiliar. So you start. Um, 
Yeah, I, I was completely unfamiliar and I was delighted. I thought it was really terrific. Um, it uh, drew me right in. It's this kind of warm, Christmassy environment inside of this 70s sorority house. Um, the characters are well drawn right from the beginning. Um, I, I, the, my only criticism with it would have to do with just the sort of 19 early 70s pacing which i think modern audiences are used to things really moving along at a mtv generation clip um this is a little more of a slow burn but i was with it the whole way and um yeah i mean we should say from the get-go that we spoil these movies so there's a there's a great twist at the end that we are going to talk about so if you're interested in seeing this movie if you've never heard of it and you're like oh i never heard of that I really encourage you, like like I did, stop this now and go check it out uh, and then come back and listen to us talk about it because I just thought it was great. Um, what do what what keeps you coming back to this one? So I think there are a lot of interesting things about this. So it um, like I told you last week, I, I felt like I'm glad you enjoyed it because I was sitting there watching it again this time, just thinking, you know, this is a really great suspense movie. Um, and I didn't feel like I, I steered you wrong in that this is not a gross out movie. You know, there's these kill scenes, but um, but it's not super sadistic or, you know, bloody or gory or anything no, like it's, that. It's a slasher movie for sure, but not in the, the way they became in the 80s where there's a lot of blood spraying everywhere and glorification yeah. of the act itself the the murders are scary but they're more of a sudden shock than a drawn out torment right um and as you said it it is a great it has a really great christmas vibe everything in this movie is red um and so it, it like you um I think said it, you know, they're in this big old sorority house and it's very cozy. Um, the characters are likable. You have the, um, the sorority house mother or whatever you, whatever the terminology and, and she's kind of a comic relief character because she's a drunk and she has her whiskey bottles just hidden everywhere. There's one scene where she has one inside a toilet and she fits. And I was thinking like, I don't know if I'd want to drink out of a bottle that had been inside of a toilet, but, uh, but anyway, so she, you know, well, she's the thought, basically the thought that I had too, is like, you're an adult and you have a room just yeah. keep a bottle in your room. Like, well, it's and not these like you're are one of the students or something who's not supposed to be drinking. I mean, these are college students so they drink, but yeah. she has them hidden in these elaborate, like there's one in a cubby, a secret cubby. There's one in the back of the like toilet. And hidden inside of a book. And I also um, thought it's hidden inside of a book, like yeah. an Agatha Christie thing. And I'm like, people will find these. Like, yeah, you literally have 30 bottles stashed. It's like a, so, somebody's going to stumble across it. So, yeah, I thought that was silly as well, because as you said, these are, um, you know, young adult women and you have Margot Kidder who's basically drunk throughout the whole thing too. And it's not like she's hiding it. She's openly drinking. So it's a little funny that the, uh, but you know, there are people who uh, not to get off on a side tangent or anything, but 
you know, there are people who, who hide their drinking for whatever reason from the people, you know, the people around them. But, um, so you have, but you have that great, uh, the great Christmas vibe, the, all of the characters are likable. And it's interesting to see um, some of these actors who this would have been really early in their career. So we've got Margot Kidder who, um, you know, went on to be Lois Lane in the Superman movies, you know, which those were a big part of my childhood. Um, Olivia Hussey. I don't know that I know her from a lot, but she's just beautiful. She's just really, really gorgeous. And, and Margot Kidder as well. You have Andrea Martin, who went on to be in SCTV. That was another, you know, I can remember watching SCTV with you uh, on television. Um, and you have Keir DeLay. Did you recognize him uh, yes. from 2001 A Space Odyssey? Yes. Um, so Dave from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, and the... Uh, I th as I think I maybe said, the suspense is great, even though, you know, I'd seen this before and knew what was going to happen. As you said, it is kind of a slow pace, but it is, um, I felt, you know, on the edge of my seat in a lot of this. This is much more, so this is um, what they call a proto slasher because it came, so basically, anything after Halloween from 1978 is considered the slasher era. And then these, some of these other movies took place before that. And it was before kind of this blueprint had been created. So one thing about watching this movie is you can see where a lot of other films ripped it off. So you have the, um, and I don't know that they were necessarily the first film to do some of these things, but uh, I don't know if we said this or not, that it's one of the major spoiler is the calls are coming in from inside the house that's been used, you know, and that, and that's a, just a, a joke at this point. Uh, and this um, movie has been remade. Yeah. It's been remade twice. Yeah. 2006. And I think 2016, um, you also have the point of view uh, of the killer. So there's, you know, the, the killer going around and you can hear him breathing, you know, that's been used a lot. Another thing that I think is very interesting about this, and it's it's somewhat timely with what's going on in the world right now, is you have this abortion subplot. And I, I tried to find production date on this and I couldn't find it, but um, this came out December 20th, 1974, and Roe v. Wade passed January 22nd, 1973 which was eight days before I was born. That's another thing, a little aside with this. These women in this film are a generation older than what we are. So we literally were babies when this came out and, you know, they were 20 years old or whatever they were, but they feel very contemporary other than just the clothing, the way they talk, the way they behave. These could be women in a, in a movie in 2021. Yeah. Um, but I think it's very interesting that they, so Jess, who is sort of the main character of the film, and then her boyfriend, Peter, who is Kira DeLay, um, she reveals to him that she's pregnant and she, she just openly says, I'm going to have an abortion. And he's upset about that. So I would have to imagine for audiences in 1974, 
this was probably a pretty cutting edge thing to be presented in a mainstream film. I, yeah. I would have to guess. Yeah. Um, so it, I think it's interesting that, you know, it's kind of the more things change, the more they stay the same. Um, so those are a lot of the reasons, you know, I think this is really well directed. It's interesting that Bob Clark, who did a Christmas story was the director of this. I, I, it's hard for me to imagine someone else who, did two Christmas directed two Christmas films that are so different, you know? Um, but I think that shows his skill as a director. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think um, all of that stuff crossed my mind. It was like, was this the first time that's been done? And it, it was, um, there's a lot of, you know, I think of the films as the 70s has having this kind of psycho, not like psychological element mm -hmm. to it. Like it's all, there's a lot of psychology going on and exploring people's underlying motives and, and, and Jungian themes and you know what I mean? So one thought that crossed my mind was... You know, there's a thesis to be written here about the portrayal of these uh, innocent victims, the, the, the objectification of the female in these movies um, and to a larger degree society as the kind of target of these killers and how the police treat them and how their fathers treat them and how their boyfriends treat them. You know, um, mm -hmm. because uh, the male characters in this seem to tend towards broad stereotypes. There's the kind of incompetent cop and then there's the competent cop. John is, Saxon. Another is, great thing about the film. Yeah. John Saxon is great. Who is a little, you know, he's he cares about her, but but there's a, um, you know, he's doing his best to protect her. He's taking his job seriously, but. The, the technology they have at the time when they're tapping the phones requires a long time of the connection. Mm -hmm. And and they get frustrated because the, the, the caller keeps hanging up. It's like, you got to keep him on the line. She's not doing anything. The guy's just hanging up. Like, how yeah. am I supposed to keep him on the line? Um, yeah. And then, you know, the boyfriend, not that not that that's a particularly 70s thing or whatever he's unstable anyway that character he yeah obviously has some anger anger issues yeah and he's the red herring i i think i myself i was like no that's just a red herring but there's at least one place in the movie i'm like wait could it be him could that be the twist that somehow it's it is him that's pretty good for a movie made in 1974 to get me what 40 50 years later yeah, almost 50 years yeah after m night Shyamalan, after the twist is a you know it's mm -hmm. an expected thing for me to still be like wait maybe it is him maybe that maybe they're twisting back on themselves like that's pretty remarkable mm -hmm. um i thought the killer got he was sort of it was laughable to me at first, the sort of killer cam, you know, it's a handheld thing and you sort of see his hands out. <laughs> okay. Mm. You know, 
as he goes and the calls progress, we actually start to get some sense of the, I mean, he's a raving lunatic. He is. Um, we've talked about psychopaths and, and uh, organized psychopaths like Hannibal Lecter. This is a he's organized enough to know when not to come downstairs. Like he waits until it's quiet or there's noise cover. So he hides up in the attic. We find out, you know, and, and he, he goes comes, down through the he comes down the ladder. Nobody thinks mm-hmm. to look up at the attic. He comes down the ladder uh, when it's an opportune time to commit a crime. He kills somebody vulnerable upstairs. Um, and then he retreats back up into the attic or then he calls. Then he calls downstairs to the other line. And his early calls are mostly incomprehensible. Uh, and as they go, he's doing other voices and he's kind of recreating what we assume is the childhood trauma mm-hmm. that made him crazy. Mm-hmm. And the more that gets fleshed out, the more disturbing it is, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Till, till by the end, it was really raising the hair on the back of my neck. I'm like, oh my God, you know, what's not shown and what's not stated uh, activates in your imagination the I can't I don't know who played the killer. He is uncredited. Yeah. And we never see his face. We he's only we know him as Billy because that's what he refers him to, to himself in the calls. But the most we ever see of his face is he's peeking through the crack in a door and we see one kind of crazed eyeball as he's staring, you know, and the person is seeing him. And this is near the end of the movie. But we mm-hmm. don't see a part of that is like, oh, well, maybe it's the boyfriend. Like, could it, we don't, we don't know what he looks like. So maybe it could be the boyfriend, but I just thought it was amazing that there was no line credit for Billy in the credits. And then you look up on IMDb, even to this day, it's just uncredited actor. Mm -hmm. He was the killer. Yeah. The guy doesn't even get a credit in the film. I mean, and I kept trying to pay him. (laughs) I kept trying to figure I really paid attention this time. I kept trying to to uh, see if I could determine if maybe they had Keir Delay record this, that it was you know, maybe his voice, but I could never really tell for sure. No, because the caller's doing, he's like, take me, Billy. And then, and then, he's doing, he's like doing very, very acute voice changes. He's doing a mother voice and a child voice. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and there's like four voices that he does by the end. And mm-hmm. in the beginning, it's just a bunch of sort of screaming and mumbling and panting. And by the end, it's like playing out what we, you know, the, the event he's reliving through these murders is, is more and more fleshed out. The ending of this thing, Man, it really got me. Mm-hmm. So, so here we're—I mean, we've already spoiled a lot of stuff. We're gonna—we're gonna spoil it all. So, you think, you think, you think you're at the end, and it's not quite over. That's not new. Um, the cop, the idiot cop, calls right. The guy. The, the competent cop can't get to the house. So he calls the station and he tells the incompetent cop who's on, always on duty. Look, you got to call her. You got to tell her to just put down the phone and walk out the door. Do not tell her the guy is upstairs. Yeah. Don't screw this up. You just got to convince her to just walk out. I'll be there in five minutes. 
Okay, chief. Of course, he screws it up. He tells her now she's worried about her friends upstairs who we know are already dead, but she doesn't mm -hmm. know that. So she grabs a fireplace poker and heads upstairs. All horror movies are like, don't go in there. But I think one of the things that's so effective about the directing of this movie is all of it feels mostly plausible. Like if she really cared about her friends, like would you, knowing that your friends are upstairs and they might not be okay, you wouldn't go and at least try and help them in some way? I think most of us, well, you might or you might not, but it's not implausible. It's like, let's split up. I'll go into the room of blades and you go into the demon-filled basement. You're like, why would you split up? That's insane. Mm -hmm. You know, but in this one, it's like, don't go upstairs, but it's plausible that she would. Absolutely. Yeah. Knowing the threat is upstairs. And I think time and time again, you're like, oh, they wouldn't hear the screams. Well, no, that's the moment that carolers come to the front door and the carolers mm -hmm. are belting it out. And she, the, the one person who's downstairs who would need to hear the screaming upstairs is looking out the window and is paying attention to the carolers. Mm -hmm. And you think, and the screaming doesn't go on and on. I mean, the killing upstairs is a stabbing. So there's sort of a scream, but she doesn't hear it. And you think that's ghoulish and horrifying, but it's not implausible. No. You know, so I thought that the directing for a movie like this that relies on a room full of women being isolated one at a time, you think, well, how are you going to pull that off and make it feel plausible? But this really does it. So at the end, sorry, so to get back to it. So at the end, um, he comes downstairs after her and it's a pretty good chase scene, grabs her by the, catches her by the hair and bangs her head. And But she manages to, uh, she manages to get into the basement and lock the door and he can't, it's his sliding bolt lock. He can't get through. So of course, it's a very creepy basement. So she retreats further down in the basement. She hears him kind of walk away. And then she sees a silhouette outside. And of course, we assume it's him that he has come outside and come around to sort of and trying to peer through the windows, the windows you can't see through. Um, eventually comes around, opens the door. It's her boyfriend who we know is unstable and who the cop thinks it might actually be. He, him. he actually knocks out the. So like you said, the, I love the shot of the silhouette of him. You know, he's going up to the it's kind of the the fogged over basement window because it's cold outside and you know he's saying jess jess you know are, are you okay and then he breaks the glass out yeah and and comes in through through the window yes and he's she's already amped up and he's very menacing he has threatened her before you know he says don't do anything about that you know don't you go take action on that baby or you'll regret it i mean he makes very explicit threats mm -hmm. about that so by this point, we're like, when he shows up and he breaks in, you're like, God, maybe it is him, you know? Mm -hmm. We don't know what happens. Cops show up. Cops hear a scream, a blood-curdling scream. They run in there and they see two bodies, him collapsed on top of her, blood all over the place. And then she sort of, she's in shock. She kind of comes to. And then they realize, oh, it's the boyfriend. And she is, you know, clobbered him with the, uh, with poker. the uh, poker. And so we think, oh, my God, it was him all along, right? Mm -hmm. And we, at that point, are not sure. 
We're like, maybe it was him. So they take her upstairs, which I think is crazy. Like you would put her in an ambulance and you'd take her to the hospital. You would take her right. back up into the murder house across mm-hmm. the hall from the bloody bed and all this stuff. But that's what they do. And she's out like she's been given a sedative or something. And the doctor's like, I don't think she's going to wake up until this time tomorrow night. Like what she needs is rest. So it's not her father, but it's the father of the first girl who goes missing is still in town. He's been there. They've all been awake. He's exhausted. He's in shock. There are some cops. Some other stuff go goes on. And people kind of leave the room. He's going to pass out. So they're like, oh, we need to get him, you know, we need to get him in, get an IV drip in him. They sort of usher him out. And she's left in the room alone. Now, there's a cop downstairs. They haven't all abandoned this victim in a, you know, 10 bedroom house where murders were just committed all alone. There's a cop downstairs and there's cops outside. But she's alone in this room. And then... We creep cam, we creep back out of the room and then we hear noises upstairs and oh my God, it wasn't the boyfriend. He's still in the attic, but the camera doesn't linger and watch him come downstairs. The camera backs out of the house. So we are hearing him come down the stairs and him doing his little murmuring and his voices again. We know she's passed out in the room. And the camera backs out and backs out. And it's this big establishing shot of the house, which is where we started. And it's quiet. And there's a cop downstairs. We can see him down out front. He's smoking a cigarette. And it's quiet for a long time. And then the phone starts ringing. Mm -hmm. And they slowly bring up and the credits start rolling. And the phone. So we know that he's climbed down and now he's killed her too. And then he's doing what he does. He goes in the other room and he calls the phone, but there's nobody there to, to tap it or pick it up or hear it. Mm-hmm. And we know eventually they're going to find this guy. Like he's disorganized. He's not going to leave the attic. They will discover that she's not, if, if he takes her back up in the attic, like he does his earlier victims, they'll see she's not there and something's gone horribly wrong. Eventually these people are going to get around to searching the whole nobody searches the house yeah this whole time i'm like i can't understand where she's gone i'm like have you done a thorough search of the house it's not until the the matron at one point thinks she hears the cat up in the attic there's no way the cat would get up in the attic cats mm-hmm. don't climb ladders but she climbs up and pokes her head through and that's when he kills her and then drags her body up there so the the missing people are their bodies are up in the attic Sooner or later, they're going to find this guy. Yeah. Like sooner or later. But it's too late for the woman that we've been, has become our heroine who we think is the last, we think is the last one standing. And it's this really chilling end to a movie where you think, you know, I think horror movies mostly get to a place where like, well, at least one of them survived to tell the tale, right? It's six friends and all five of them get butchered, but the last one figures out a way to push him into a combine harvester or something. That was another one of the things that was created later was the idea of the final girl. Of the survivor. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Not here, Jack. Mm-mm. And I thought, I thought, oh, snap, that is old school. That is OG. It's like a, <laughs> it's like a zombie movie. Nobody yeah. survives. Right. In, in a legit zombie movie, there's no escape. 
the 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 dead walk the earth. It's over. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of time. Oh, you make it to the boat. You get on the boat. You ride in the island. The island's infested with zombies. Where are you going to go? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And that's yeah. it had that feel. It's like nobody gets away. Yeah, that's a good uh, that's a good comparison. Now, did you do you feel like the the killer is just some unknown person or is it one of the other male characters that we've been introduced to at some other point in the film? No, I think I think Billy is um, Billy is Billy. And Billy doesn't mm-hmm. have any, I, you know, I wonder, I wondered why this house, why these people, but I didn't see anything in anything he said or anything that tied him specifically to the final girl or any of the others. He seems drawn specifically to that house in the beginning when he climbs up the outside and he climbs up the outside there's a specificity of purpose. Like he doesn't feel like he's just wandering around. He makes a beeline for that. Maybe this is just the killer cam. This is them pioneering this. I don't know, mm-hmm. but it, it feels like he makes a beeline for that house and climbs up and has some sense of where the attic is and goes up in the attic. But it's not like, oh, it turns out it was his, her brother the whole time or anything. I, I didn't think it was any of the other male characters it, with the possible exception of maybe it's the boyfriend who is a very yeah. deliberate red herring and clearly unstable. Yeah. The, and I think the mystery of all that is really great because I think in other films and especially maybe, um, you know, in, in newer films, they would. So, you know, we never know, as you said, why it's this house, why he went after these women. We get from, as the phone calls escalate, as you were saying, we, you know, get to know a little bit, these other personalities that he has, but we, but there's no scene where it's like, oh, here's the flashback where we're going to show you when, you know, Billy was abused as a child or whatever. And you right. know, he did whatever we, they just give us little bits of that but it doesn't really matter. We don't need to know exactly what happened to him. What we get is a sense of the, how, the depth of the trauma this individual suffered. And I think that's a very 70s thing too, as we began to understand the serial killer and what would make someone do this, right? As we became aware of this type of disorder and it started to seize the popular imagination um, was like, well, they, you know, a lot of times there's sexual abuse, there's physical and emotional abuse. There's neglect. There's like, it's trauma. Trauma causes someone. And we get the sense from the repeated calls that although he doesn't kill the women in the same way, it's not like he's repeating a specific murder it's almost like, cause he keeps talking to his sister about, we need to hide what we did. And near the end at right before he kills, he refers to the women he's about to kill as the sister. So you think he and his sister, when they were young, maybe did something to the baby or he was the baby or they did something to the baby and he killed his sister to make her keep quiet. something like that. Um, but he gets to stay a scary boogeyman because we've never seen him. 
And mm -hmm. all we know about him are from these phone calls. And you don't get the sense that, like Hannibal Lecter that he's always going to stay one step ahead from of him. The horror is it's a monster that has crawled into your attic and nobody has thought to look up there. Mm -hmm. You know, like he could have been stopped at any time. He wasn't going to outsmart the cops. I mean, he was, he's raving, you know, he's, he's lost in some reliving some horrible thing that happened to him. Um, he doesn't have a gun. Like they would have just shot him if they'd have found him. Probably yeah. he'd have come running at them with the blunt instrument and they just would have gunned him down. But that doesn't happen. He just mm -hmm. keeps sneaking back up into the attic and nobody even thinks to look up there. And, you know, there are, there are real stories where, um, Similar things to this have happened where um, like a uh, I read an article once about a guy that um, hid under a woman's bed for like a year or something like that, you know, and he would come out, you know, when she would go to work or whatever, he would come out, roam around and then he'd go back in under the bed. I mean, he didn't kill her or anything, but um, and and even instances where uh, people have lived inside of the walls of a house. Um, and, you know, people didn't know, but that's not something that you ever, you know, you don't expect there to be a killer in your attic. So, you know, it makes sense that they never would have thought to look, you know. Well, no one even. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's plausible because the first two people he kills, he hauls on. I don't know how you haul a body up a ladder like but you think about it too much. So, yeah. well, the, 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 the matron was already at the top of the ladder, so he didn't have to bring her far. And I guess right. the, first, the first girl's pretty petite. But he has them up there with him in the attic, their bodies. It isn't until, I guess, the third and fourth women that he kills are left in the bedroom. One, he kills one in the bedroom, right? The other goes up to check yeah, Margo her, Kidder. Yeah. And he's still in the room behind the door. So when she goes in and sees that her friend is dead, he just is right there to pounce on her. And right. then when what's her face comes, the, the last girl comes upstairs, uh, she sees, well, no, who it's not till later that she opens the door and those bodies are still there. Yeah, I think that's yeah, and that's the police find those bodies. The whole first half of the movie, we're concerned about this missing girl. Yes. And everybody's still just kind of hoping that she ran off with a friend or something, you know? Mm -hmm. And they find a little there's another missing girl, a 13-year-old, who they find dead in the park. Right. And so that is enormously distracting for this small community. The cops are all a buzz about that. I mean, that's a horrible thing to have happened so near Christmas and all of their resources are going towards searching for her. And then they find her and the press is all focused on that. So it isn't until later that somebody, somebody, I guess the final girl comes in to complain about these obscene phone calls that the competent cop is like, so a girl goes missing Another girl from the same address is reporting these repeated obscene phone calls. You don't think it's at least worth checking out? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. all right, I'll check it out. The incompetent cop is just. Yeah. So 
he's human, but he's kind of punching the clock and he's not a very bright bulb. And he's kind of, oh, we got a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> You're like, oh my God. And you know, that's another thing with the, with the, I think it's really plausible that the police would, you know, when um, they get there and she's killed Peter, I think it's really plausible that the, that the police would just be like, well, he was the guy because John Saxon was already really suspicious of him because of his behavior. Um, and you it, know, it's and, not, not a thin trail either. Like he had yeah. a, he had a, um, he had a sort of final piano um, review or concert for his grade or whatever. And it didn't go well. He smashes up the piano and he smashes up the, the piano with a music stand. And the, the piece itself is this very, you know, dissonant and chaotic, frantic thing. And in his response to her um, telling him that she doesn't want to get married and doesn't, doesn't want to have his baby, you know, he becomes very distraught and he threatens her. And so she tells the cop this, I mean, he kind of draws it out of her. But then the cop goes and does some investigating and he sees that this is an unstable guy and he smashed up the piano and it starts to look pretty incriminating for him. Well, it was like, what, who, yeah. where are the other suspects? <laughs> yeah. Know? I mean, like how many people do we have to pick from? Right. And so the cop is like, he says, I don't want it to be him. But I mean, I think we have to go with the evidence. We're like, who else might be doing such a thing you know and she's like oh he would never do something like this and he, he doesn't brush her off but you know he's following legitimate leads yeah and it's just always he's at it when she comes into immediate threat he is at his furthest away for it's just the timing of everything feels like this tragic set of unfortunate coincidences and yeah tragic it, is the is the feels, right word but it's plausible the whole way oh, yeah. through. That's great directing. Yeah. Yeah, I agree for sure. Yeah. It tragic is the right word because even though you don't like the boyfriend very much, it's like, well, it's a shame that he got killed and he was innocent. You know, he might not be a great guy, but he's, it doesn't appear that he's a murderer, you know? Right. Another and thing that I, you, you oh, don't ahead, really, sorry. you don't feel, you don't feel bad for the killer. No, but, but, the calls are scary and it, 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 the thought does cross your mind. You think, Oh my God, what a nightmare of a life this yeah. individual had. Not that that justifies murder or no. you say, well, let's get him some help. You know, no, this is a person that needs to be incarcerated or institutionalized for the rest of their life. Um, you know, clearly they can't be running around, but, uh, but you do think as you start to get a picture of what's going, the calls are almost cries for help. Yeah. At one point, I think he is sort of sobbing saying, God, please help me. You know, please, somebody stop me. Somebody help. Something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And if not sympathy, then there's a, there's at least a flicker of pity that you think this monster was made, whether mm -hmm. deliberately or just by circumstance that this these horrible acts are somehow the end result of acute suffering <laughs> you know yeah and it, that just makes it all the worse you know because it's not freddy krueger or 
the demon who appears in the video cassette. It's not some incarnate evil. It's another person doing these horrible things. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's just yeah, me. yeah. I agree. And and you know, you talked about the, the the kind of bleak ending, and you know, this this may be me reading too much into this or putting too much on this, but it's pretty common that horror, I mean, good horror reflects what's going on in society at the time. And, you know, when you got into the seventies, you'd have the, the kind of fifties, sixties, where you had the creature features, you know, where giant ants and stuff like that. And that was all the atomic era. And then, you know, once you got into Vietnam era and people were seeing all these horrific things with the war, then giant ants or giant spiders or whatever weren't scary anymore. Um, And you also had the, uh, you know, this would have been coming off of, so we had the, the abortion issue with this. And also this would have been coming off of Watergate when, you know, it was kind of like up to Watergate, people had more, um, you know, trusted our, uh, the Faith. systems and all that. And then Faith people became, the yeah. Yeah. Then people became, Oh, we, if we can't trust the president, we can't trust anything, you know, and yeah. became very disillusioned, you know, and, and the and concept this, that it's, that it is, that so often, I mean, Watergate was, there was definitely deliberate malfeasance, but it mm-hmm. was a whole lot of human error. Right. And a whole lot of, you know, not evil in the way that we think of, uh, Adolf Hitler, you know, but, but just petty, like the whole beginnings of Watergate was like, he won that election in a landslide. He don't need to bug, you know, but his, his petty um, need to like fix the game or just get the edge on the opponent and play dirty. I mean, it's now you look at it, it's almost quaint. Watergate that's such we just had an insurrection Mm -hmm. so it's like but but I think you're absolutely right that a lot of this movie is like you know if everybody were just doing their job a little more like if everybody was just a little more focused if everyone was a little more on it it feels very human in that way across the board that people are fallible Mm -hmm you know, and wrapped and self-centered and wrapped up in their own things. And all of that feels remarkably plausible. Oh, and, sure. And at the end, there's this sort of, if only, oh, if only, oh, if only, if only, if only, all of this could have been averted. And it's sad because you have these girls in the prime of their life at this, you know, what's supposed to be kind of the happiest time of the year, Christmas time. And, you know, this really, and it's sort of like, ah, they're not safe, you know, even in their own, home that they're living in while they're in college. And even with, you know, you have the thing with the police. And again, this is a, a trope that's been used over and over again, where they have the, the, the cop that's stationed outside to watch them. And he gets, you know, you find out at the end he's been killed. Well, I wonder who uh, did that. I mean, did the guy come down out of the attic? That's the yeah. assumption is that he would have had to do it. But that, that struck me as very organized. Thinking. Well, he'd gotten out to kill the, you know, the girl, um, you know, the young girl at some point, you know, so are we, I um, mean, we presume that he killed the little girl. In the yeah. Park. Presumably. I, I mean, it, I wondered if that hadn't happened on his way to the house. Could be. Yeah, that's true. In the park. And then he 
I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, and they didn't find her till later. Yeah, but that's possible. Because I'm like, once he's holed up in there, why is he coming back out? But one more thing that I think is interesting about this movie that they something that was handled much differently when this real slasher trope was established is these girls are never sexualized, right? You know, they're just characters. They're just women. There's no, you know, this is one in the shower. This is, you know, so you, there's never any, again, they're attractive women, but there's never any, you know, they're not walking around in their underwear or anything like that. So, so that's something that definitely goes against the grain of what would come later. Although you're absolutely right. And that struck me as well. Um, Although there is a fair amount of uh, in the beginning when one of the when the first girl to go missing, her father shows up because she didn't show up to meet him and go home for the holidays. He comes to the house and is scandalized by the kind of sexual liberation, the evidence of which he sort of sees all over the house, a, a, a peace poster where it's a man and a woman are naked and she's lying on top of him and you can see her, her butt mm-hmm. and they're making a peace sign. Right? right. So his legs are spread and she's lying on top of him. And the, the, it's a comic bit where the house mother sort of spots it and covers up, you know, the indecent bit. Um, and, and just the sort of women's live like, Oh, these, these young women are people and they are sexually independent and, mm-hmm. You know, they drink what they want and they date who they want and they sleep with who they want. And we like to think of them as our innocent little girls, but they're women now. And that's part of their life, too, and part of their independence. And that is seen through the eyes of a prim, admittedly, right father, you know, who is worried about his daughter and is sort of like, well, I didn't I didn't send her here for, you know, and you're like, well, I don't know what your deal is dude but you know she's 21 or whatever she is you know um but it also struck me too that the killings have nothing to do it's it's not a sexual expression no the murder that this uh perp is doing isn't a replacement for sexual gratification right it's the reliving of some earlier event that is stuck that he's stuck in and we definitely get in the, the later, you know, later films, later slasher films, it very much becomes the trope is the, you know, and it's, it's women, but also sometimes it's men as well are killed because they're bad because they have sex or they do drugs or they drink or whatever. And there's no, there's no judgment made in that way of, about these girls. I wonder, you know, it's, it's hard to say 50 years out um what the um what the view would have been of this film for audiences at the time but you have to feel like you know things things have progressed so much since then but i'm sure maybe if older audiences saw this you know they it it seems like they were really making a statement with okay this is how younger women are now today and that's okay you know and i'm and it, it you know it was probably much more scandalous to older maybe if someone w- was watching this who was more the age of the father 
than it would be today. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm not sure. I would be surprised if this movie was aimed at that audience. I would think it'd be much more aimed at the college audience. Sure, uh, yeah. But but yeah, there's there's politics in this movie, mm-hmm. not deep under the surface. It's not beating you over the head with anything. Absolutely not. Um, but it, but yeah. it's there in the... You know, there's a class thing too the, with the with the sort of den mother. You know, mm-hmm. why does she hide her drinking? Well, maybe I don't know who employs her. If the college employs her, if the sorority employs her, but she'd probably lose her job if they knew she was an alcoholic. You know what I mean? And probably and, just women of her generation, it wasn't acceptable. Yeah, and and her and you see that you see that to comic effect a number of times when. She's sort of yelling obscenities at the cat. And then there's Mr. What's-His-Face. And she's like, oh, I'm ready to go whenever you are, sir. And she just toggles back and forth between the good face and the real face, which is like, as job, nobody appreciates what I do, you know? Yeah. And it's a little bit interesting that he is also, you know, she's played for comic relief, but so is the dad. And, you know, we find out later... um, or maybe we know, you know, most of the film that his daughter has been murdered. So he's actually a tragic, you know, a tragic figure too. Yeah. And that her, the first murder happens very, very early in the film, very Mm -hmm. early in the film. And then things get quiet for a while. Like the whole plot unwinds gradually. But one of the first things that happens is the first killing. Yeah. And I thought it was shocking, you know. I thought that image with her with the plastic over her face was was genuinely scary. I was like, oh, you know, she sits up and there's a kind of a thrill of strings, you know. But it's mm-hmm. it's genuinely upsetting. And then we return to her. She's up in the attic. He's got her sitting yeah. in a rocking chair, her body, and he's talking to her, you know. And he's, but we never see him. I can't believe they didn't credit. Who shows up in a movie in any way and doesn't get a credit? Like, not an extra. You know, the guy has lines. (laughs) Well, it was Canadian, so I don't know if they, um, you know, their laws were a little bit different. I don't know. Um, And another thing, this was, there were a a bunch of these, but I believe this movie was... um, so there was an era there where, and you really got into Cronenberg really got established with this, where there was a special uh, tax break in Canada for filmmakers. So, um, you know, people were, uh, that became kind of a business model for a little while. It's like, Oh, we can make a cheap horror movie and, you know, we can, uh, we get a tax credit for it. And and with this one, I, I think it said the budget was about 620,000 and it made over 4 million. So, I mean, that's pretty, pretty good size hit for 1974. Absolutely. Well, it's a great movie. I mean, I, I, I unreservedly recommend it. Yeah, I do as well. And I'm glad that, uh, you know, so I was watching this and I thought, ah, I think Chris is going to like this, but I wasn't sure. Um, like I said, it's not a gross out, it's not a gross out movie. Uh, probably the most disturbing things, aspects of it are some of the phone calls because they are really obscene, uh, the things that, you know, that he's saying, saying to them, but yeah, I think it's, so it's, you know, if you like, um, 
horror suspense. Uh, you know, I think this this feels a lot like a Hitchcock. Maybe some if Hitchcock had been doing stuff a little bit later. Um, and it it's great to watch this time of year because you have that excellent Christmas vibe in it. And so, yeah, I, I feel like, um, you know, this is probably one that a lot of people haven't seen. Uh, and, you know, especially maybe if you want to see kind of the origins of a lot of the stuff that came later. I mean, this was, this was definitely ripped off a lot. Yes. Um, the sequels I have seen and I don't remember enough about them to say whether, you well, know, whether you to watch them or not, but you don't, you don't remember enough about them. So, yeah. So yeah, I, I highly recommend this one. I also, I read that, um, supposedly Elvis loved this movie and would, I don't know how many years this would have been before he died, but they said he would watch this. Like after it came out, he would watch this each Christmas. So oh. that was kind of interesting. Yeah. A little feather in its cap. Exactly. Yeah. So you would yeah. watch it while seated on the toilet. <laughs> and what did you watch this on prime? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It so it's good. on prime. Yeah. So yeah. Highly, highly recommended. Yes. And you sent me a couple of interesting trailers that I watched that I thought mm -hmm. uh, look good. At least one interesting trailer. Um, have you watched anything since we last spoke? I have not. I've been kind of traveling and reading. Um, I started a movie last night that I've only watched like half of. I watched it and got tired and didn't finish it. A, a Belgian movie called Advent Calendar about this girl who is a paraplegic and on her birthday, which ha happens to fall around Christmas time, her friend gets her this gift from Germany, which is an advent calendar, this like huge wooden advent calendar. And basically as she, uh, you know, opens up the door for each day and, and eats a piece of candy, it basically, it's kind of uh, something that she wants to happen or wishes to happen then happens. Like her father has Alzheimer's and he, he doesn't remember her anymore. Um, and he wants, she wants to talk to him for her birthday and, but she knows that he's, he's, he doesn't remember her anymore. And when he gets the piece of, when she eats the piece of candy, then her, her father calls her and wishes uh, her a happy birthday. So they're like little um, Christmas wishes. Yeah. So little Christmas wishes, but then it gets to be sinister. There's a, she goes on a double date with the friend and, uh, the friend kind of hooks up with one guy and another guy drives her home and on the way home, he stops and basically tries to assault her. And, you know, she's like, leave me alone. And he then throws her out of the car and just pushes her wheelchair over, uh, you know, on the side of the road with her. When she gets home, it's time to open the next little door and she eats the candy. And the, when she does the, uh, she finds out the next day that the guy was killed in a car accident on the way home. So, it, so there's like a monkey's it, paw element, it, like that. a monkey's paw kind of thing. And so it's not super original and I, I doubt the ending is going to be super original, but what I've seen so far, it's just really well done. It's, it's well acted and, and well-made and it's a Belgian, a Belgian film. So, um, that's the only thing that I've watched, uh, recently that I can think of. I think the other stuff that I, watched most recently we talked about last week so what have you been reading 
Oh, I'm reading. Is it that I, Wheel of Time? I'm on book two of Wheel of Time now. Yeah, okay. I'm still enjoying it. Cool. It's high fantasy. Mm -hmm. um, and it's starting to get a little soap opera-y, like the actual stuff that happens unfolds relatively slowly and it's about the relationships there's a lot of internal stuff about them but i'm hooked on it now so we'll see where oh, it cool goes. and you said it's a several books right like eight or ten or something i i, I thought there were 12 i something oh, wow. said there were 14 so wow yeah i mean it goes on and on it's very derivative of lord of the rings there's a dark lord there are the sort of chosen unlikelies that have to go on this labyrinthine quest and uh, there are fundamental differences too, but certainly in book one, there's like, okay, well, somebody took a synopsis of Lord of the Rings and then condensed mm -hmm. it into the <laughs> the plot of this book. But it's, you know, fertile source material. So I wonder how much fantasy, you know, has really reinvented the wheel, no pun intended, since Lord of the Rings. You know, there's kind of the... You I don't know, because I didn't, I mean, I read Lord of the Rings and I didn't read, I read horror, I read Stephen King. And so that's a branch of fantasy uh, mm -hmm. fiction. But I didn't read a lot of swords and sorcery stuff, none that I can really remember. Um, as a kid, there were some, there was a series called The Black Cauldron for young readers. Mm -hmm. I, think I read that. And I, as a kid, read several of the um, the Robert E. Howard Conan Robert E. Howard Conan books back then, and those are you know those are kind of I mean those were written in I think the twenties and thirties. They're kind of problematic, I'm sure now because they're really misogynistic, you know. And but I was eleven or twelve or thirteen or something, you know. That's and, just how it is in barbarian land. This is how it is with the barbarians. I also read some of the and I know they did an adaptation. I think the sci-fi channel did it, but I read some of the um Shannara books. Did you ever read any of those? Sort of Shannara and those other ones, Terry Brooks. No, but I'm from uh, that sounds familiar to me. Yeah. Those are I at the time I thought they were really cool. Um and well, Game of Thrones. Properly I, I read. I read all those books. I'm waiting yeah. to finish reading those books. I'm wondering. I'm like, is he ever going to finish that? So I actually heard just the other day um, that on another podcast, so they were talking about the spinoff, or I think they're doing multiple spinoffs. I don't know, but I guess he is writing the spinoff. Um, but they were just like, why not just finish the books? You know, but. Uh, I, recently but I read, think he, he read he wrote a prequel, a whole prequel that is like what one of these HBO spinoffs is based on, which is mm -hmm. about the I mean, I don't want to bore you with the, no, no, all the names. But, the you know, one of the protagonists is, is from a family called the Targaryens, and they were mm -hmm. apparently conquered the whole thing. So it's 300 years before the events of Game of Thrones take place. And it's just it's one book, but mm -hmm. it's a Game of Thrones sized book. And he wrote that, you know, so there's, I, I guess there's seven books and he's written five and people have been waiting on book six for, I want to say seven or eight years now. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's doing all this stuff. I'm like, dude, finish the series. 
I think uh, he seems to almost in interviews that I've seen, you know, and I don't know a lot about Game of Thrones, but in, in interviews that I've seen, he seems to almost relish the fact that it drives the fans crazy that he hasn't finished them. But, you know, he seems uh, there's I mean, actually I, look, really I, I'm not I don't you hear some of these people spout off about it. You don't anymore. But yeah, some people take it real, like he owes it to them or something or yeah. like it's their property, like he's a contractor that they paid him to build a house and he hasn't finished yet. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, he doesn't owe me anything, but I'm like, you've got the hook in me pretty good, man. It's like, just tell me, like, do you ever intend to finish it? Why don't you give the property to somebody else to finish? It? Just so I have some closure. I've, I'm five yeah. deep. Can I get two more, please? You know, there's a good uh, interview that you can find on YouTube with him and uh, Stephen King, and they're kind of interviewing each other. And, you know, Stephen King is this guy where, as you know, where it's just like, oh, yeah, over the weekend, I wrote an 800 page book, you know, and George R. R. Martin seems very much not that guy that it's like much more laborious for him to get through it. Yeah. And, you know, he talks about that some in in the interview. So I, I, I mean, I don't blame him almost just be like, hey, I'm making all this money just producing these different things. Hey, and more power to him, more power to him. But I think that I think that you don't need to look much farther than that in his. um, So he writes author notes about each one. And I remember on the author notes or the forward or something on the last book he wrote was like, the last one was really hard. And this one was twice as hard. And so Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm feeling like as the pressure builds to tie off this epic seven book series in a, you know, and you know how bitterly disappointed with, fans of the show were so once they got to the point after he'd written they had to make up their own ending and they did that in consultation with him but there's a lot of complaints from people being like that the final series final season of game of thrones is epically disappointing mm-hmm. not because it doesn't look good or anything else but there's these plot lines that they have nurtured and milked over the whole series that suddenly oh and then he, then he goes her and she does that and he does it at the end and you're like you took eight episodes for these two characters to like cross this part of the country. And we got this entire plot line with the living dead is tied off in one episode. Like Mm -hmm. that's a whole season right there. You know? So I don't know. I'm, I think maybe the creators that were just getting tired of, of doing it too, because viewership wasn't falling off. I mean, that was like, I know it was getting more and more expensive. I know mm. that they were spending more and more money and taking longer and longer to shoot it. But I don't know that that was required. I think they could have eked out three more television seasons of that show. And the the audience would have been just as rabid as ever. And this was something, it, it, I was having a conversation with some friends about this just a few nights ago. And we were talking about Game of Thrones and other shows as well, where... And I'm sure the people who are in charge of these shows, you know, don't want to relinquish anything and have new people come in or whatever, but it's somewhat amazing. Also, I think some of these shows are on such the budgets are not the, the budget is not what I'm going for, but the, you know, the time budget is so tight that, 
you almost wonder if, and you know, of course they want to get it out to people as fast as, you know, it's like strike while the iron is hot, but you kind of wonder with these as often as, you know, you think about really big shows like Lost and, you know, the, the Game of Thrones and Dexter, you know, which they brought, which all shows that people weren't happy with the endings of them, um, that you wonder almost if these studios would be better off just saying, okay, for the final season or the last couple of seasons or whatever, we're going to take our time and really come up with a great storyline. But I think it's just, we got to get this out here because we, we got to make sure it's hot and, you know, people haven't, maybe people are going to decide they don't want to come back to this, you know? Well, I think you also run the risk of losing your talent. That's true. Yeah. You know, um, I think, you know, you, you get a kid Harrington or you get some of these other Amelia Clark, um, who had acting gigs before, but mm-hmm. this was such a catapult for them um, that they start getting other offers. They're starting yeah. to get feature film offers. So they're starting to get offers like, what do you want to make? I'll put you in whatever you want to do. And of course their agents are like, all right, we're done with season seven. Let's come back to the table and talk about season eight. And their agents like, we went five times the money. You're going to, you're going to make another season without Jon Snow? How are you going to do that? It's got to be him. Pay yeah. up. I mean, that's what happened with uh, Downey Jr. And, and Iron Man. And they got yeah. him. Yeah. They got him by the short hairs. And he's like, mm-hmm. hey, what's 50 million for this for all? He wants points on the film. And the studio's like, what? No way. And he's like, okay, bye. And like, wait, yeah. wait, wait. You know, so it's like, I that's it happened with The Walking Dead too, which went on a good long time. But that is a mm-hmm. show about Rick Grimes. It's an ensemble yeah. show with a lot of great people in it. But the property of The Walking Dead is about Rick Grimes. And Andrew Lincoln, that actor, I don't know what came up for him, but at a certain point, he stepped out of it. Yeah. And he was like, you know, and I have continued to watch the show and there's a lot of great people on it and I'm not slamming the show. But at a certain point, you know, people want to, they don't want this to be their whole career. Like I've been doing this for a decade. Well, and you have the same thing with the writers too. You know, I was kind of, you know, uh, insinuating maybe with some of these shows that you bring in new blood, that can be a good thing, but it also can be a bad thing. It can be a bad thing. And when these shows are are successful, then writers start to leave, you know, the, uh, maybe not the head writer, but the other writers start to leave and become showrunners of other shows. And then sometimes when you're bringing somebody in new, then it gets all messed up. And a lot of, you see this a lot where characters start to become caricatures of themselves right. where it's like, oh, that character wouldn't right. do that, you know? Right. And no um, studio is going to say, oh, we had a great first season and second season was even better. Let's see, there's seven books. I'm going to sign you for a contract for five more seasons. Yeah. Right? No studio does that. Not even right. HBO with deep pockets. You know, they might say, We'll sign you, you know, we'll sign you for another season with a clause that says if we do a season after that, that you agree that you're on board. If we do Mm -hmm. that, you know, they go, okay. And so that goes, season goes better and better. And then they have to come back to the table. And they're like, yeah, that was a couple of zeros on there, guys. (laughs) That's interesting. You bring that up and you talked about, um, you talked about Robert Downey Jr. I don't know if you saw, and I, I don't think we talked about this before, um, with Tom Holland with the Spider-Man movies when this one was about ready to come out. And he was like, yeah, I think this is my last Spider-Man movie. 
And, you know, I don't want to be playing this. I think I'm playing this character when I'm 30, you know, something's wrong. So I think this is probably going to be it. And then Disney was like, not so fast. Three more movies. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> he signed on to three more. Well, so. Disney, I mean, they're such monoliths now. Mm-hmm. It's, it's actually a lot like the studio system in the golden age or whatever. I mean, they had almost bottomless, bottomless pockets. Yeah. So I'm sure Disney showed up. Disney owns Star Wars now. Disney owns Marvel now. I'm sure Disney so showed up and said, Tom, I'm going to write a number on a piece of paper mm-hmm. and we just want you to think about it. And they wrote some bonkers number. I mean, you know, yeah. he looks at it, he goes, I'm going to say no. It's only three more movies. I mean, I could do that. And it'll be interesting to see if he is like a, um, you know, two of my favorites that have really leveraged being in these giant franchises are Elijah Wood you know, he did the Lord of the Rings movie and movies. And now it's just kind of like, I'm going to do whatever I want, you know, whatever. I mean, he has his own production company and also um, you're rich, you're rich, dude. And, and the, what's amazing to me is how they got Ian McKellen back because Mm -hmm. shooting, I love this. I love that franchise. Mm -hmm. They went away for a decade to shoot those first movies. Yeah. And, and I remember, uh, uh, Vigo Mortensen wasn't going to take it because he's, he's got a kid. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm going to go to New Zealand for 10 years, not a prison sentence. They took breaks, but sure. you're just away doing that for a whole chapter of your life. And they, they renegotiated and they came back and I'm sure that made all of them rich. But then Ian McKellen came and shot three more movies in the Hobbit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you think, you know, in Orlando Bloom, some other people came back too, but you're like, so that's 20 years of your life mm-hmm. on that single character, that single franchise. I have a feeling harder to do with uh, Gandalf's character, but like with Orlando Bloom, I have a feeling they organized the shooting. They knew they were going to do all three of those movies and they just yeah. said, okay, we're going to bring you down here for six months. We're going to shoot out as much of your stuff as we can. And we'll probably need to bring you back for reshoots for another six months later. It wasn't like the first time where they all went and decamped and shot the whole thing in one fell swoop, you know? Mm-hmm. That's crazy. That is, oh, yeah. I mean, when you're a young actor, that's like, this is it, man. But when, when you're his age, it's kind of like, I don't know how, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what, what his life is like. The same thing is similar to Elijah Wood. You have um, Daniel Radcliffe, you know, who was Harry Potter and it's the same thing. He was in this gigantic franchise and now he just kind of does whatever, you know, he does some kind of weird, you know, little movies and, you know. Oh, he's um, made it. If he ever needs a yeah. little spare change, he can do an ad as Harry Potter if they license yeah. him. You know, he could go to a Comic-Con and just sign. And he's coming, but there's <laughs> another Harry Potter that he's going to be in, which I don't know exactly what they're doing with that. But oh, you know, there's there? a trailer. Yeah, there's another one where he's older. Um, so Another uh, movie. Not the I don't know if HBO it's a, anniversary thing where it's like I, they're all, it's just a celebration I, of the whole franchise. No, no, it's actual. There's a trailer with him in character, but he's older and... I think has long hair and maybe a beard and yeah. No so. kidding. And it's Harry yeah. Potter. Yeah. It's Harry Potter. Well, I mean, I guess so. it's stupid to think that they would leave that alone. That is a golden goose. Oh yeah. Did you ever read any of those books? Oh yeah. I've read them. Yeah. I read them um, solo before I had kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
just because I was up at, uh, we have a summer place up on Lake Michigan and mm-hmm. I was up there and there's nothing to do up there, but read. And one of my cousins, or I guess my nephew or my niece who was appropriately aged for him had left him around. And I had heard all of this buzz and I'm like, Harry Potter, right? Whatever. How good can it be? And I, I just was in between books and I picked it up and it sucked me right in and I gobbled them all up. And then I had, I have two kids and I read the whole series with both of my kids, like at bedtime. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's great. There's a reason yeah. why it's such a big hit is it's really special. Oh yeah. I only ever read the first one, but I, the movies are great. I've, I really enjoy them, you know? Um, I think so. if you ever find yourself in a position where you have a young reader and mm-hmm. you're in charge of bedtime, if they have uh, an imagination that tends in the, and, and that likes the fantasy stuff, it's really great. It, oh, yeah. And it really, it's so smart because if you have a reader who's even in proximity of the age each year they get, I mean, you don't wait a whole, you don't read one a year, but when yeah. they were coming out, you know, she didn't have them all pre-written. So mm-hmm. she wrote them based on the age her kids were, were when they were in school. And if your kids were that age, one came out each year and then they right. were the age of the protagonist. And it was just. Yeah. Genius. I, I, I know if they had been out when we were kids, I would have been, I'm sure I would have eaten them up. Yeah. Know? I mean, they are children's books, not right. that adults can't enjoy them. They are, they're children. They're written for children, mm. young readers. Yeah, we are. We're so, over time. So what are we going to do for next time? We had talked about Batman Returns. What do you think about that? Sure. Yeah. So that's a holiday. Another holiday. Holiday one. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. OK. Yeah. So, I'll revisit okay. that one. Sounds good. That's the Tim Burton sequel to the Batman. No. Which was very not to just really quick thing. I don't know if I told you about this or not, but just in the last week or two. Um, Danny DeVito did an interview with some magazine and said that um, you know, he's the penguin in that in that film and loved playing the penguin. And he said he said that was just a really special time for him in his career. And he said that he would love to play that character again if they could if they could get Tim Burton back to do it. He's just like they get Tim Burton, and, and I thought. That's one of those things DC's doing, you know, Marvel's doing multiverse stuff. DC's doing multiverse stuff where they're bringing back um, uh, Michael Keaton to be Batman and Ben Affleck's going to be Batman. And you have this other, you know, with Robert Pattinson, Batman. And I thought, why the hell not? They should just throw a bunch of money at Tim Burton and just be like, hey, we're going to do another, you know, this will be its own little universe thing, you know? Yeah, if he's interested. Yeah. He may not be at this point. I don't know. Yeah, but. he certainly doesn't need the money, but nope. um, you don't you don't know how they convince each other to do this stuff. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so Batman right. returns the Tim Burton version from ninety two. Ninety two. Ninety two. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Danny DeVito and uh, Michelle, Michelle Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer is Catwoman, and uh, Christopher Walken is I forget what his character's called, but another oh, bad guy. Yeah. I forgot yeah. about Christopher yeah. Walken. Excellent. It's a crazy movie. Yes, yes. So. Great. Yeah. And it's a Christmas themed thing. It's right in our wheelhouse. Awesome. Chris yep. and Chris talk movies at gmail.com. We're on YouTube. We're on your podcasts. 
We are right behind you. No. Uh... <laughs> We're in the attic. <laughs> Don't go up there. Guys, you got it. If you haven't seen Black Christmas, I know we just ruined it for you. It's really yeah. good. And just in time for Christmas. I mean, this is one that you can watch, you know, uh, after right. the kids are in watch bed it. on yeah, Christmas don't, Eve. Or... Don't watch it with the kids, I think. No, not good but, for, uh, I mean, teenage kids, although they might get kind of embarrassed at some of the words that they, that the obscene phone caller says, but maybe, um, yeah. Anywho, um, anything else to add before we sign off for this? I think we covered a lot. So we did, we covered a lot. We got well off track, but that's what we do. Makes it fun. So Chris Huddleston, Chris Ferry, uh, we will talk to you next week.